Okay, Foster Care Nation, as promised, we're going to bring you some more of the uh, oldies but goodies here this month. And so this week, we're going to rebroadcast a show we played a long time ago with Faith Ihiozuba. Yeah, I screwed it up on the recording too, so don't feel bad, but she has a great story. So you guys kick back, enjoy this show, and we will be back to our regularly scheduled stuff as soon as we get time. But we're busy taking care of the important stuff, you know? So that's what we have to do, and you guys are going to get a look back at our past. Foster Care Nation! Listen up. This is... Foster Care and on Paralyzed Terminator! Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey with Jason and Amanda. Today we have faith with us. And I don't mean faith like necessarily faith in a religion or god i mean faith i'm gonna give this a shot here yeah never mind i had it in my head earlier Ihozua or say i'll let you say it faith because you'll get it much more right than me well you try i give you that um so it's pronounced a i was the tough one kind of <laughs> <laughs> how you doing today faith oh i'm doing great i'm doing great thank you for asking that's great you know I was listening to a podcast after podcast because I drive for a living, as a lot of people know. And mm-hmm. so I spent a lot of time on the road and I'm always looking for new podcasts and yours popped up. And I said, yeah, let's check this out. This is interesting. And your story just kind of blew me away. I mean, just the simple fact that even in talking to you, we have to have to really think to figure out how many siblings you have because mm-hmm. your foster parent or your, your adoptive parents have been a foster and adoptive home for a number of years. And I think at the time I heard you talk a while back, you were somewhere around 10 siblings. I know now it's up to like 17 or 18, but what a story, you know, for, for somebody who came out of, out of Liberia and has turned her life around and is now talking about it on her own podcast. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your story so we can kind of just get to know you a bit. Yes. Well, first of all, I just want to say I'm very excited to be here um, with you and your wife and also with your audience. Um, I'm very grateful for this opportunity to share my story. You know, of course, adoption, um, it's more than a topic for me. It's, it's my life experience, right? And, um, and I'm thankful for you guys allowing me to be here to share my story. So uh, just a little quick background about myself. So um, as you mentioned earlier, Jason, I was adopted um, at the age of 14 from Africa and a country called Liberia, a beautiful country that I grew up in and learned a lot of my traditions and cultural. So um, grew up on the orphanage for a bit. I was blessed enough to be adopted and I came to the U.S. at 14 years old in 2005 and, you know, went to school um, and just now started my own family and trying to use my story to change people and just to empower and also to inspire others. And, um, and now I'm just trying to, you know, be that uh, person who wants to give back and do much more to the society that have done so much for me. And that's, that what we all need is to 
give back more when we for what we were given. That's that's a, a great story, Faith, that, that you're giving back from where you came from. You mentioned that you were adopted at 14 from an orphanage in Liberia. Can you talk about the experience of being in an orphanage in Liberia? Because honestly, all I know about Liberia is its rough geographical location. It's over there by Africa, right? Yes. And I know that it was in the news at one point. And yes. not much of it sounds like it's it was real pleasant news that they were talking about at the time, wars and things like that. So I imagine coming out of Liberia, you probably had a, a, a story to tell about your, your childhood. Most definitely, Jason. And, um, you know, the beauty about having the news is you get to learn a lot about other, other countries. Um, sometimes maybe bad news and sometimes maybe good news. And unfortunately for Liberia, um, you know, a country that I love so dearly, there was a lot of negativity that came out of there because of the 14 years um, civil war. So a little bit about the orphanage life. Um, I grew up when I was about 10 years old. I was taken to the orphanage um, in Morovia, which is the capital city of Liberia. And so I lived on the orphanage for four years. And then I was uh, while on the orphanage course during that time. Um, we had a lot of war going on around us. So the war that actually started in Liberia started in, 19, um, in 1989. But about around 1990 is when the war really kind of took off, really, because we were in the middle of a new transition with elections and all of that stuff. But so I was always, I was pretty much very young, right? Um, and my auntie who raised me, she always used to call me war baby. And I thought how, what a tragic name to call a child, right? War baby. Um, but come to find out later on in life that because I was born during the war, um, 1989, and then the war actually started then. So that's why they called me war baby. And so there was many war babies that were born during that year. Um, and unfortunately, some of them didn't, didn't end up living, uh, living on to continue um, this life, but I was blessed enough. So I went to the orphanage because my, um, my auntie who raised me couldn't afford to send me to college, to send me to basic um, school. So yeah, I was taken to the orphanage and there I, um, there was about 150 of us on this orphanage. Um, this orphanage was notorious for lots of bad things. Um, there was a lot of child trafficking going on at times. Um, of course, when there's war, there's always gonna be chaos. So we kind of really tried to manage as much as we could um, as young kids on the orphanage trying to survive. You can imagine, right? Um, for those of you who have having experienced war, it's never, it's, it's a lot of hardship that comes with it. So we try our best to survive on the orphanage, on the streets, um, trying to do what we could to survive until we, we um, you know, I was blessed enough to get adopted. Wow. Being a product of, uh, of that has to have left its scars in your life somewhere. Oh, most definitely. Um, you know, and I... I know that with what I went through on the orphanage, it was it was a lot of uh, difficult times, difficult things that I experienced. So yeah, it definitely affected me mentally, um, physically, just emotionally in every aspect um, of my life and also created a lot of trauma for me too. I would expect that, that T word to show up. Trauma shows up in, in a lot of those situations. Um, have you, have you done any sort of trauma counseling and that sort of thing worked through that since you've, uh, you've gotten a few years older than you were maybe at 10? Yes. You know, um, 
I've done some, but I feel I can always do more. Um, just if you think about trauma and just the way everything happens when I was, because, you know, growing up there, not just the war, but growing up in my um, immediate family home in Africa, I had abuse also, I was abused. And so when I went to orphanage, that kind of carry on there. So um, over the years, you know, being an adult, I was able to take some counseling and, and really try to help myself. Um, just because I know how much I've been impacted by my past and my past always seemed to creep up and be a part of my present. So I needed to find a way to um, kind of understand all of it and process it as much as I could. And so it's been very helpful, honestly, once I, um, I recently went to see um, a diagnostic uh, psychologist and um, it was the first time I actually met, met with a behavioral um, person and he was able to help me a lot and now I'm in the process of getting that um, really focusing on the the trauma which is my it's travel trauma that I have and carry and uh, a bit of anxiety so just stuff like that I've been able to work been working on it as I go so it's a lifetime process I think yeah but you seem very self-aware of what you've been through to be able to uh to realize that and then be intentional about getting some therapy and counseling and bringing some psychologists on board to make sure, because in, in this world, um, and I, I know you, you grew up not in a standard American culture necessarily from a very young age, but we're out here in, in mid Missouri and I spent a lot of time in St. Louis and I know that in a lot of the urban areas around here, that mental health piece is something that people really frown on, on looking at realizing that, man, you might have some things wrong with you. And I might even have been one of those people at one point in my life until I realized how many things were wrong with me. And God knows there's a list over there and ask, she's laughing for a reason. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, just realizing that you're, that you, you have those things and then being willing to work on it. That that's says a lot about the person that you've become. Um, So when you were 14 years old, you were adopted out of that orphanage into the U S Tell me what was that like? Because that's, I've heard so many different stories about international adoption. It seems like each and every one is so very different and the way that it happens and, and the way that people respond to it. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. We'd like to take a quick minute to step out of the podcast here and ask you guys for a little bit of support. If you could share an episode with people, friends, in a group, with family, anywhere where there's somebody who would like to hear this. Also, if you'd like to join us and support our mission, a couple dollars a month would be really helpful. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash foster care nation. Now back to the show. Most definitely. And that's the beauty of our adoption, right? And um, there's no one story that I like. Uh, we all have our individual unique story and, and it's authentic and, and real to us based on what we, we went through. And, um, and I feel like adoption also, it can bring a lot of feelings that right? when we talk about it, it can also, it could be either a negative feeling sometimes, it could be a, a positive feeling. Um, to, to whoever it is, right? Whoever it is that's talking about adoption and based on their own story. And often I think it comes with, like you said, many stories, right? When we go through a lot of life events, those events that Nukes experience, it becomes a part of our stories. And, uh, and for an adopted child like I, like I am, um, I have been 
obviously through many challenges in life, just many different experiences, of course, um, that I kind of that's kind of helped me really create this narrative and what I now call my story um, that I have to own, even though it was not ideal at some point, right? Some of the experiences and like things that I went through, they weren't ideal, but yet they also what built me up and built me to a place I am and a woman that I become, a strong woman. So. Uh, my story with adoption began in um, Liberia. I was just on the orphanage trying to survive with me and the other kids. And I remember every so often there will be um, somebody from abroad. Um, they will come through to the orphanage and will come and take pictures of us, all the kids on the orphanage. And um, it was one of those things that we all gravitated to and we enjoy having those visitors, those guests, because for many of us, it meant that there were hope for us. There were some light at the end of this corner that we were going through during this dark phase of constant civil war. And so when we ever, whenever we saw those guests come through, we knew there was hope. And so they always came through and took pictures of us. And I remember vividly, um, the orphanage leader, she will always get us all together and it will be a big deal. We all have to dress up, um, not in our fancy clothes, but something that was very, um, that really spoke of our poverty, something that spoke of a child who is, you know, really needing um, help. So our, our parents have to cry out to these guests and let them know and let them feel the suffering and the things we were going through, the trauma. So we were all dressed up in our took our red clothes and, and lined up. Um, and each of us will get our pictures taken. But here's the, here's the interesting thing for me, because each time there was these guests that, come, that came through to the orphanage, um, a lot of them came from America, some Europe. Um, and at the time, I remember they always had these big camera with them when they come through. And very kind-hearted people, they will take pictures of everyone. But luckily enough, I don't know if this is a luck or, or not, but I was never there to take, get a, take, a picture taken. And um, it's because I was always on the street. My friends and I, um, we felt like we cannot survive if we stay on the orphanage. So we always, you know, went out the, the gates and tried to be on the streets and, and beg for food and try to do what we could to survive in that, in that environment. So as we would go out to, um, I guess, hustle, um, it was during that time when these guests would come through and take these pictures of these kids. Now, keep in mind, we have 150 of us on this orphanage, right? So after all this is done and done, I remember one day I came home from um, one of my um, outings, and um, there was a lady there. She was this American lady, and she was taking pictures of all the kids. And I, I remember rushing through the, to get to the line to make sure my picture was taken, too. And um, as I got there, I would have been about age 11 then. And she's snapping photos of everyone. And I'm thinking, yes, this is funny. I get to get my pictures taken today. I'm looking forward today. So once I got to this point where it was my turn, I remember she turned around, looked at me and says, I'm sorry, sweetie. Um, the film, we, we don't have any more film. Next time, though, when we come back, we'll take a picture of you. Well, you can imagine as a little girl, I thought, why is this happening to me? I'm never going to be adopted. I'm never going to be... Um, to have a sponsor, it was more like a sponsorship is what we were trying to get. And um, I felt very down on myself and I felt very unwanted at that time. But I think God always had a plan, right? He has a plan and where he goes through things. So 
that was one of the time when I felt like, well, this is never going to be something that I will ever experience, which is adoption. So I just kind of put it out of my mind why I was on the hospital and just kind of on, in, on, the, on the orphanage. And I just began to focus more on my survival and the other survival on the orphanage. So what we'll do, every time we went out, we'll, we'll beg for food and whatever we need to do. I'm not proud to say this, but um, I became, we all became petty thieves, which was something we weren't proud of looking back. But I think sometimes when you're hungry, and hunger will make you do things that you wouldn't do otherwise. Um, so I remember going back and forth. We would come back home and the and we'll cook for the little kids. Because keep in mind, during this time, the war has been going on for maybe 10 years. And a lot of the people that had the kids on the orphanage, they have escaped be, uh, because the war was actually nearing our city where we were. And we had two rubber groups. One was on the right, one was on the left. So we were in the middle of all of this. And so a lot of the kids' parents have stopped coming to the orphanage to visit them, um, and me included. So we had to really survive by ourselves. And so to make matter worse, the people on the orphanage, the leaders, they have this whenever the UN will bring food, whenever um, it's like a, it's an agency called World Food Program, they will bring food to our orphanage. Um, at nighttime, the lady will sell all of the food. She would sell everything, bring a truck into the compound, and they would haul everything out of the, out of the orphanage. And you, all you could do was just watch them at night, in the middle of the night, and you just start to cry because you know, this is your only source of survival, but yet it was being sold. And so throughout this time, I remember thinking, if I ever make it through here and this war doesn't really end up coming to us in the middle of this city, I hope to someday just become somebody and, and do something with myself. So as year goes by, we're, we're here on the orphanage, they start to, we start to see less and less visitors coming through for the right reasons, because it wasn't safe for the, um, the national people to come, like the guests from abroad to come on the orphanage because of the war. So there was one time, a, one of my best friends, her name, um, she came, um, she was on the orphanage together. We were at the same time there. We were about the same age. And we did everything together in the orphanage. So we just kind of had this bond. And somehow, just by luck and by the grace of God, she got this family in New Jersey. They wanted to adopt an older girl. And she was 14 at the time. So she ended up being adopted. So once she was adopted in 2000, I remember the day she exited Africa, she... Um, she pulled me to her and she said, hey, I'm going to America, but um, I want you to remember this. I will never forget you. So that was that was for me. That was amazing because it was like she was telling me that I, I'm going to do something for you. I don't know what she was capable of. But she said, I will never forget you. And I want you to always stay on this orphanage. No matter what happened to you, never leave the orphanage. You must stay here because I'm going to send for you. And in Africa, if a person goes abroad and the person says, I will send for you, that means I will come and get you out of this poverty. So you, you as a child, you, you, any hope, any, anything you can get to hold on to is meaningful. So for me, that was meaning. That was the sign to say, I must stay here. So anyway, she left and she was adopted. She was 14. She lived in New Jersey with her adopted family. Um, over the years, I didn't communicate with her, of course, as Somehow she wrote a letter one day and 
kind of show pictures of her and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to go to America. This my friend is having so much fun. So the story came about because my mother, my adopted mother in America, she told me the story of how I was adopted. So my best friend who as a child in the orphanage had been adopted in 2002, she was, um, while she was in New Jersey, her family had already adopted from my orphanage also. And so they were communicating through the agencies, right? The adoption agencies. So my mother um, in Montana reached out to my best friend's parents, adopted parents in New Jersey and said, hey, um, we're looking to adapt, or they were planning on adapting another person from this orphanage. And as God would have it, my friend, she was supposed to be adopted by my, my adopted family initially, but they didn't move quick enough. So they were already some, another family adopted her, this family adopted her. So as they were talking one day, she had mentioned to her mother and said, well, there's this, I have this friend, this best friend on this orphanage uh, where I came from um, in Liberia. And I'm not sure whether she's still alive due to the war, but if she is alive, I would love for her to be adopted also. So my parents, they relate, her parents relate that to my parents, my adopted parents here in America. And my mother says she knew instantly that I meant to be her, her part of her family. So that's kind of how the story happened when um, they then went through the, the agencies and the agency actually came and found me on the orphanage. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. If you'd like to find yourself in a group with like-minded people, head over to Facebook and you can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. We've got a group over there where we talk about foster care, we talk about adoption, and we talk about all the things related. If your podcast player allows it, you can also reach down and hit that subscribe button so you get notified every week when we put up uploads. Every Tuesday, a new episode comes out. We'd love to see you next week. Now back to the show. Wow. What's the chances of that? Right. I mean, that's just incredible. And I mean, you're, you're still sitting here and you're talking to us and it's just, I mean, for a child to have to go through as many traumas and trials and you're still upbeat and you're still trying to get your story out there and, and talk to people. It's incredible. And help other kids. Thank you. Yes. And, I think it's important to share our stories because stories are such a good way to um, relate and to connect with other people experiences. So, um, you know, it's not, it's not about, you know, having a really well thought of life and having um, positive, whole positive childhood. Um, it's, it's, it's about for me and just sharing my story. Yeah, it may not be the best as to some people, but I think it's my story and I, and I need to share that. So when I was adopted, before I was adopted, I remember the day, like it was yesterday, a lady, um, her name is Patty, and she has an organization, a nonprofit um, in Liberia at the time. She came to my orphanage one one night, and I remember um, one of the kids on the orphanage had came to me and was like, hey, we have this lady, we have three white ladies, they're here to see you. And I'm like, what? Why? And they're like, oh, they came to see you. And um, they wanted to talk to you about something. But before I talk about that story, I remember there was a, so this white woman, she came one day and she had this camera and she showed up on the orphanage and she had told us that she came from America. She was with the New York Times, I believe. And her name was Caroline Cole. So she's a very well-known person. And so she came to Liberia to do a, she, she was a photojournalist 
right? Came and do a story to do a story on the war and how they affected, how the war was affecting young kids in Africa and Liberia at the time. And she really felt like she needed to share the story because the war, the West needed to step in and stop this war um, on behalf of these innocent kids. So when she came on the orphanage one day, this photographer, she said, hey, guys, she told us that she wanted to make a, take a picture of each of us. But there was there was a place you wanted to actually take this picture, which was a swamp back of us in the in the back of our, our orphanage. And I remember we all got so everybody so scared and we're like, there's no way we can go in that swamp. That swamp, like, I mean, there's a lot of snakes in there. We have like alligator, just stuff like that. So everybody was very afraid. And this is a swamp we used to actually go into pig greens to cook and eat because we didn't have any other means of food. Um, but when she, when this lady came in, Caroline, she began to take pictures of all of us. And so I, I decided, I raised my hand. I said, listen, I will be the volunteer. I'll go into that swamp. I don't care what happened to me. I will post and I will take a picture. So we went. And Caroline took this picture of me. And um, the picture of it's, it's interesting because I'm standing in the swamp and I'm picking this green and she snapped this picture of me. And we go to the orphanage, we go back to the orphanage home and she's looking at, we're looking at the picture on her camera. She's showing at each of us. Honestly, Jason, it was like, this was like the first time that I've ever felt like I, I was able to process the war and really see what the war was doing to people. Because through her, all those films, like when they say, when you hear people say a picture can tell like a many, it tells a little many wars and it, it, it can really evoke a, a story. I was like, this is amazing because I saw how much the war has took so many lives. I mean, she had a picture in there of the rebels at this place and they have this port. This is port we actually used to have where the food will come from abroad and they have to get to this port and then you can go in and get the food. They had lined all this bag of rice, all this food and things up into the, it was like mounting to the sky. And the rebels were actually, they were firing at it and like destroying all the means of food. And I saw that picture and I remember that still reminds me today. Every time I think of it, I'm like, damn, that's crazy that people are so evil like that. And she said, yes, she says, this is what the world is doing. And she said, I said, why do you think it's important for you to take a picture of us? She said, because no one has listened to you any of this. Um, I think it was like President George Bush that was in, in the presidency then. She's like, I needed him. I want him and everyone else to see your picture to know that there's got to be somebody that needs to come and do something and stop the war. So, but then she showed my picture. This was, remember, like, this is the first time I actually see myself in the mirror. And I'm thinking, this is me. Like, I was not myself. I was minorized. I have become almost sick to the point I was could I to die. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. And so she told me, she said, when I get to America, my goal is to actually publish this in the Times and to really write a story up and show the people. She says, some of them may not believe it. Some of them might watch it and just go back to the regular life. But I know somebody will actually see it and want to do something. And today I can still look at that picture online because of her. I go up to the LA, the New York Times and I see the pictures on there and I'm like, wow, like this is amazing that I actually got this opportunity. So my parents decided to, why did I share this story? Because once my parents decided they wanted to adapt me, Unfortunately, Jason, there was no story, there was no picture anywhere for them to actually see me. Because a lot of time when you're adapting someone, I mean, you guys went through it, um, it, it's just knowing what that person looked like, right? 
And so they wanted to have that and they couldn't have it because there was no picture of me. And get this, this is my best friend who came to America in 2000. How she came with an unfinished album, which had like 150 kids in this big album. And I remember she looked through there and she did not see any picture of me whatsoever. So my parents are like, okay, well, I guess there's no picture of her. We, all we know is her name is Faith and she might be 13, around 13 or 14. That's it. But we will adopt her. So my parents were able to find a picture of me because of this photojournalist who had taken this picture of me in the swamp. Um, so my parents were able to go to the Times website and they saw a picture of me for the first time. And that was it. And wow. so I was adapted from there on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the only <laughs> picture of you is, is when you made it into the New York Times. Wow. That's yeah. You know, if we go back into, into that time frame, did you have any biological siblings that you know of? I do. Honestly, I, I, um, this is actually in present now I'm getting to um, like know my story a lot more. Um, so at the time I did have my biological, in fact, my mother and my father biologically, they're all alive in Africa right now. Um, I have, there was 11 kids of us, 11 children of us. My father said that, um, the seven alive, I'm the third child. So I have a big family. I just didn't know of them because this is another part of my story. Um, as a three-year-old, my father, my biological father had gifted me to his sister, my auntie, um, which is the type of tradition, I guess. So she was buried, she couldn't have kids. So she was, you know, of course, in that part of the world, it's not, you know, it's frowned upon, right? So when my father says, as the story goes, when my father and his sister, they were only two alive. Um, when their mother died, which is my grandmother, um, my auntie, my father's sister, took him in and raised him and sent him to school. So as that repaying her, he, he said that if a sister cannot have a child, um, a brother has to give somebody, you have to give a child to your, your sister. So I was the, the one giving to her as a gift um, because I was the oldest of her. And so I was giving, I would give it to her. And so I never saw my family at all. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, from, from being more or less kind of adopted by your auntie first and then and, yeah. and into the orphanage and then again into America. I mean, what a ride. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Jason, I always think about it. And sometimes like my husband's like, wow, you were, you were already in adoption. You're already in the adoption world. Like you're already in that process because you know, that was a form of adoption given to my auntie being given to auntie that's that's just wild i mean my goodness what a ride you've had and all the way to san angelo not san angelo i was stationed in san angelo <laughs> years ago san antonio texas <laughs> raising your own family there now i mean what an amazing journey you've had yes. that's that's got to be something for you to to have experienced and and turned your life around so far to be able to to understand that, man, life is, is difficult, but, but you still have a smile on your face. And I, I, I'm just, that's right. I don't know. I, I think I'm kind of blown away by that because I see a lot of stories where people talk about their, their journey through having been adopted. And so many people have so much vitriol and anger behind it because they were taken from their first family. But, but you've walked through one heck of a journey. 
and still came out the other side smiling and looking for for places to help people not i don't know if you're if you have anger left in you i don't see it well thank you for that um you know it's it's been taking me a long time i think um i've always been a person that i feel lucky i feel that out of the 250,000 people life that were taken back in Africa, in Liberia during that 14 year war, I could have been easily taken. My life could have easily been taken along with all of those people. But I feel as though I have a lot of reasons to celebrate my life now. I have a lot of reasons to want to be, be better and, and, and be person of um, kindness and, and, and be happy because why I didn't, why, why I wasn't taking, why my life wasn't taken in Africa, I feel it was a purpose behind it. And um, part of that purpose, I'm thinking it's to be able to be of something good to the society and, um, and use my story and my voice to um, bring about good things and, and share my story in hope of, of changing lives and helping people really see that, yes, you may come through, you may go through a lot of storms in your life. You may experience a lot of hardships. There may be a lot of roadblocks, a lot of dark holes, but your soul sometimes, it, it, it doesn't mean your soul is going to be punished forever. You still have something good in your soul that you can still bring a life and be able to um, enjoy lifestyle. Well, from the time that you were in the orphanage back in the day until modern day, the internet has made a big world mighty small. Have you been able to reconnect with your auntie at all? Yes, I have. Um, and like you said, man, thank, thank God for all this technology. It's, it's been such a big step in helping like my people like myself um, be able to reconnect. I did reconnect with my auntie um, seven years ago and along with my biological family. So I am in contact with them usually through Facebook, which has been very helpful. So how has life been going for them? I mean, I, I honestly don't know how the politics or, or culture of Liberia is moving these days. So how is life going for them? Yeah, I mean, for them, I feel it's a day-to-day struggle. Um, there's uh, so much, there's still a lot of corruption, unfortunately. Um, it's sad, it's sad to me to say something as such, but it is the reality for them every day. Um, the political you know, atmosphere is still the same, right? There's still that corruption, there's still poverty. Um, it's just tends to map trying to figure out life. And but I would say this that Africa as a whole, um, including I mean Liberia, it's people there are just so, so forgiving and they're just so much um, they have so much faith about life in, as a whole and they hold so much really to their their traditions and their religion to keep them moving forward. Um, so no matter what, there's always gonna be bad rulers. There's always gonna be um, people that are corrupt and not wanting to do well by them. But I feel like they always have a way of pushing through and trying to find meaning in the one that seems to be none. So life is still, it's still the same, honestly. Um, but I think a lot of them, a lot of time they have there's nothing else to do or there's nothing else to really hope for, but just to keep living on as best. But they're doing okay. Well, that's great to hear. That's great to hear because here in America with our politics, 
I mean, we hope that people can keep pushing on because we may have a little bit of corruption and problems in our own system as well, right? Yeah, I think everywhere has some some form of that. It's just the magnitude of it, right? Um, like you said, it's everywhere. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. So I know that you now have your own podcast talking to people about your adoption journey and stories of adoption called Lift All Voices. What made you want to start your own podcast? Yeah, so when I become very int- I became very interested in um, writing. This kind of stemmed from my um, adoptive mother. She really pushed me to write down things that I was going through and I was experiencing from my past. And she taught me to always have a journal. So I started writing very, very early on when I came to America. Um, and so that really kind of helped me to express my feelings and my story, just write those things down. So as over the year, as the years gone by, I kept going back to those journals and writing and rewriting and reading them. And I will tell you this, this was like for me as some a form of therapy therapy um, that really just kind of helped me expose all those grievances, all those emotions, feelings. And I was able to really feel like, okay, this is, I'm getting closer to understanding what things happened to me and why did it happen this way? So once I started doing that, I realized that I needed to share my story. But honestly, it all started when I went to um, an event in San Antonio here, and it was about um, childhood trauma. And I learned so much. This is about two or three years ago. And I learned so much about the effect on childhood trauma and, and how it carries on to an adulthood when not treated or looked upon. So I thought, this is something that I didn't know. And I felt like this is something I can actually take and do something with. So I kept on writing and I felt like, wow, there's so many stories. I love to write. So I think if I can tell my story and help somebody else see that, you know, what they've been through, maybe I haven't been through it, but if they can share it and just express that story, it's a way of healing them also. So Lift Our Voices, it's a story thirty a storytelling um, platform. And what we try to do is to invite other peoples with different um, experiences. You know, it could be community leaders, it could be an immigrant, it could be anyone um, to come in and talk about their story and, and really have because I feel as though sometimes our stories, it there's so much to connect to a person when you hear the story. Because sometimes we may judge somebody without even knowing the background, like what happened to them. But when we actually hear the story, the authentic real story, it's, there's something without that that kind of connects us to that, that human side of it. You know what I mean? So I think that's what I'm very passionate about. And looking into it, like I'm like, I have to be able to tell a story. And I figure, well, this is something I want other people to also utilize to share their story and be able to connect with other people's experiences because I don't know they were all human beings. And so that's how this whole lift of voices kind of, it just came about because of that. Wow. You know, I'm always amazed when I get to meet people who come from such trauma, tragedy, struggles, you know, all of that, a really hard world. And they come out of it with an urge to help other people. You know, that's, yeah. that, that just speaks volumes to who you've become. Do you, are you still in contact with anybody that you were in the orphanage with? I thank God for, for social media. I am. And I see them all the time on Facebook. We communicate through there. And a lot of them are in the U.S. Some of them are in the U.S. now. So we communicate there in Africa. So it's just interesting seeing all of our lives and 
seeing what people are doing with their lives now. You think, wow, back back in the day, like we were barely trying to survive and we didn't know we were going to be able to live to tell a story. But here we are now. We are still moving forward in life. And I'm just grateful for that. I think we were all lucky. Yeah. 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 Because that's a tough place to come from. But Mm -hmm. my gosh, if it's not amazing to see people come out of that tough spot into becoming amazing humans. And here you are living in, in uh, San Antonio, Texas and, and helping other people out. Now well, you're like, le- nobody can see her, but I mean, she's got a smile all the time and <laughs> she just seems like she has a spark. Thank you. Not everybody has that spark, especially after it's broken out of them. So that's really awesome to see. Appreciate that. So with a last name, like, like, Ihiozuma, no, Zuba. You got it. That's yeah. it. Something like that. <laughs> I, I, I'm gonna guess whoever. <laughs> I, I know that's a married name, right? It is. Yeah. So I'm gonna assume who the the whoever you married probably probably is not like I don't know um, Mexican or or you know something American. Yeah, that's not a very <laughs> typical. Americanized Maybe. last name. So, are you is are you married to someone else who who came from um, Liberia or somewhere else? Or yes. So he, uh, my husband is from Nigeria, and we met in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. Yeah. <laughs> of course, in Salt Lake City, that just makes right. sense. <laughs> randomly. <laughs> the world is an amazing place, and you right. have three little kids who are going to get to learn to spell that name in kindergarten. Oh yes. They're already trying to figure it out, and I'm telling you, sometimes it's difficult. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we, we've been a foster and adoptive family for about a dozen years, and we have seen some names, so I understand. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we've had more than one that we kind of felt sorry for when it gets to kindergarten time. There was one little girl actually who lived with us for one whole night, I think. Yeah. So they were locating family. Yeah. We were just an overnight emergency. Yeah. And we're not allowed to to give out a whole lot of personal information, but I can say Mm -hmm. her name because I know I can't say it right. It was M's. It was an M, a bunch of O's, I's and A's. And I Mm -hmm. think it came out kind of like sounding something like Mariah, but this poor little girl, I, I heard her name and I was like, Huh? <laughs> well, <laughs> to no, learning that, that name. There was yeah. a baby, and they couldn't even tell us his name because the little girl didn't speak well enough to. Yeah. <laughs> it was baby, wow. You know, baby. It well, was the girl. Natural. Yeah, it was a little girl with an M name and and her baby brother. That's all we knew. We still don't know what his name was to this day. Yeah. But yeah, the, the name thing can be a real challenge for kids. And it's always, always interesting to see them go through that when they, as they go through their, their young mm-hmm. years, but I'm sure we, we all figure that out as we go forward. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Now I know you have another project that you're working on now because, you know, helping, helping kids isn't enough. So we got to help, help other people, <laughs> right? Um, the yeah. LAPA project is, you know, working with empowering women in Liberia. What, what was the genesis of that? What made you decide you needed to start that project? Yeah, so when I came to America, I always felt there was something I needed to do back home in Africa. And I don't know if it's just, you know, when you have a roots and you have that foundation and a place where you learn so much, either so much hurt or so much things, and you just kind of been, I just always been tied to it. And I felt I needed to, because I think when you go through a lot in life sometimes, and that's the thing, like I meet people who've been through so much more worse things than I have, and they still have joy, they still have happiness. And I think, I used to think, 
what? How is that impossible? But um, you kind of get in a place in life, a point at the point of your life, you just have to realize that in order for you to live fully and really enjoy what we've been given, what we've been blessed, so you have to move forward and um, in some ways forgive, not forget, but forgive and, and move forward in life and be happier and be grateful for where you are now because you couldn't change back then, but now you have the choice to move forward and, and live a, a more decent life. So I always wanted to give back and help those people in need because I know what it feels like to go someday without food. I know what it, what it feels like as a, a girl, a young girl, and, um, and watching my auntie being abused and seeing all the women not really treasure as they should have been in Africa, in Liberia, as a young girl, I realized that if I can do something to help empower a woman, that will help her be able to empower her kids and in turn also empower a whole, a whole community and a whole nation. So when this Lapa project came about, it came about last year in February, um, a friend of mine who actually, she's actually the one who did my adoption, and uh, she has an organization. It is um, called Acres of Hope International, and it's a nonprofit, a 503. She's been doing this for so many years, almost over 30 years, and she's also been back and forth, right, in Africa. So she reached out to me and said, hey, Faith, I have this idea in mind, and I've always thought that you've always been a person I love to volunteer and do a lot of good things. So would you be able to partner with me? And, and I said, well, how do, you, how do you know? Like, I've been wanting to do something with, with, with education for my people in Africa, and I just didn't know how to go about it. And she said, well, I hope you can join me. So I decided to join her in February last year when the pandemic hit. So we've been working on this for since then, and we just kind of been, because of the pandemic, we were supposed to go to Africa and things kind of slowed down. But behind the scenes, we've been trying to put everything together and it's been going so so well. We have about, there were supposed to be 20 ladies to sign up. We have 50 of them that came and signed up. And we told them, hey, we don't have the funding right now because we just started this this, um, project. Um, so, but we do already have a school down there, which um, the organization already have a school for kids. And so we're going to be utilizing that building to, for now until we build our own. Um, so the Lefau Project really is something that really speaks to me because I know a lot of these women, they're very hardworking and given the right opportunity, they can do a lot to, to really um, empower themselves and to really be able to um, help their kids either go to school, pay for tuitions, pay for uniforms. Um, and they really are the ones who help fuel those uh, eco- economic growth in that, that type of country because the women are the backbone. They're the ones who are doing the, uh, the petty trades in the markets and then they're the provider, they're everything. So giving them an opportunity like this, um, a skill to learn how to sew, will not only give them something to be able to you know, empower themselves, but also they can now use that skill to contribute to wherever they find themselves. And they can really be able to um, make them feel like they're somebody and they can take care of themselves. That's amazing. Um, what does LAPA stand for? Is that an, an acronym? Does that stand for something or what does that mean? Yeah, so the LAPA, is, it's, a, so it's a name for a fabric. So um, Africa fabric, uh, if you ever seen one of those, they're very vibrant and very colorful and very traditional. So it's a lapa, it's 
a fabric that we use, the women use for many multi-purpose uses. They use it for uh, wrapping around the body. Um, a lot of times they will use that laptop for putting the baby on the back. So if you see some of those photos, yes, that's, that's what a laptop is, where they carry the baby on the back with the, with the laptop. And a lot of them will use it for um, putting on the head to carry load, um, to so it, it, it's meaning, um, there's a lot of meaning to the lapa. Each individual person has their own meaning. Um, but for me, the lapa means protection because it protects the baby and it protects a woman when she wears the lapa, she feels proud. Um, a lapa means also, um, you know, celebration, celebratorial events. It's, it's, well, it's something that a lot of African will utilize the lapa to show kids um, how happy they are is used for wedding ceremonial, for all those different naming ceremonies, just very, very traditional. So the lapa means a lot. Um, and so when we were coming up with a name, we wanted to bring something that the women can relate to. And we thought lapa is a great name. It, a lot of African countries use it. It's just named, it's called different in different parts of Africa. So for example, in Nigeria, a Nigerian person might see that and call it the rapa right, because you wrap it around your body. Um, if you go to South Africa, it may be called the Penguin. And so it's the exact same thing, it's just called differently. And nice. um, now, is, do you guys have a website for your project? Yes, we do. We just launched our website. Um, it's called the lapaproject.org, and that's spelled L-A-P-P-A.org. Okay. Lapa Project. Yeah, that's really awesome, you know, and to think of how much that program will help empower women to empower their children. And you literally change generations that way. Most definitely. That's definitely the goal. Absolutely. Now, I know you said they're a 503. Onesie. Onesie. Yeah. It's tricky. Yeah. It's a nonprofit. How about that? We'll go with nonprofit. Let's just assume we have one or two wealthy people out here who are listening to this who want to want to donate to that. That's something that that strikes our heart. Do you guys have a, a platform for them to be able to to donate and help you guys out, or is that all on the website? Yeah. So we are because of the COVID nineteen, we can't really do a physical lunch event. And uh, normally we'll have to you know get together and do a little just to introduce the project. Um, but so what it is, is the organization, the nonprofit is called Acres of Hope. And uh, like I said, it's a 503 um, nonprofit, which means it's, they have tax status, right? And so um, that's the main nonprofit. So the LAPAP project is actually an initiative that's created from that nonprofit, okay? So if they want to, for those of you who would like to um, contribute or help us, with this um, project, you can go to the lapaproject.org and you can donate through our um, donation or donate now button from there. That sounds like a great organization because just like you mentioned earlier, as, as children watching the UN food come in, who was donated from the UN, who got money and, and food and, and stuff mm -hmm. from people in countries where all that money was donated and corruption takes it over. Yeah. I, I find that these nonprofits that go out there with a good heart like yours and your partners to actually intentionally help people mm -hmm. are the ones who change generations. Exactly. And I think that what you said is so true because we, for me, I think it's more important nowadays for us to not too much focus on um, just giving them 
like clothes and things like that. I feel Africa, Liberia as a whole, the people there, they need to work. Just like we all work for things here. They need to work. And if they have, you know, the ability to do something like, for example, our nonprofit that our, our initiated a lot of project, each woman that signed up, they have to contribute $7, their, their dollars. So some people might look at that and say, well, that's too, that's crazy. That's outrageous because these people are poor. They don't have money to donate into um, a program. And it's, if it's a nonprofit initiative, but I was one of those people who thought of, of it like that until one of our um, partnership in Liberia, the person who oversee everything, she had mentioned to us, she said, yes, we have to have the women contribute to this initiative. This is the only way we can get them to get through this process. A whole year of sewing school, yes, people can donate. People have, we have great people that have good hearts and want to do best and want to do good. But I learned in life, for you to be able to be successful and do well in something, you as an individual have to contribute to your own growth. So you don't contribute to it. Sometimes you don't take it serious. It may not have a meaning for you. And so we decided to have them put in something small at $7. And that way they, they have the, some, a part of them is part of it. So if you go through this process for one year of school, you can now, we can take that $7 at the end of the school year. School year we have a big fashion show they can now create and um, whatever, you know, they can now use that $7 to buy materials. Uh, so it's basically it's um, an encouragement fee for the ladies to encourage them to want to do well. So that way they can use that fund. It goes back to them. They can buy fabric, create something for themselves. And their goal is to be the, make them individual um, entrepreneurs where they have jobs, where they can create their own. They have they keep their machine. They can sew and create income for themselves. Of course, we have to be able to support them and teach them. We have, we'll be teaching them basic um, business entrepreneurial skills and money management, which is basic budgeting for them to be able to know how to manage that and not just because if you teach someone to fish, it's great, but you have to be able to teach them the whole entire side of it on how they can sustain that and not be able to come back again and be asking, like asking for handout basically. So we're kind of, we're going towards it as a, as a entrepreneurial um, opportunity for the women. That way we, we can kind of get away from that handout, you know, that we are used to in Africa and make them work for what they need to learn because education is something that you can't, you can't take away. It's something they can always have. And they are going to be the mentors that mentor the younger generations and show them high for a lot of these women, they don't really have basic not literacy. The literacy rate for women in Africa in Liberia is, I think it was like 23%. It was like less. And these are like, a lot of them are from the interior side. So they don't have the means of education. A girl education was not, it wasn't important back then. So their generation came up without knowing anything about how to read or anything. So if you give them a skill like sewing, they can really have something that they can empower them. They think, you know, I can do this. If I can make something of myself, I can create something for myself and my family. I can know that at the end of the day, I did this and it's to benefit my family and the community and they can then pull back into the community. And that's what it's all about. It's not about, I give you hundred dollars today, but that hundred dollars might be gone and you may come back for more. But if I teach you something, hopefully you can utilize that, that skill and then be able to multiply that. So that's what it's about. Wow. It sounds like they've really thought this project through quite a ways because that makes a whole lot of sense. 
Yeah. You know, and, and the way you talk about the people of Liberia, I mean, I'm just encouraged with the amount of resiliency that appears to be there, not only in their ability to just, just survive in, in yeah. difficult circumstances, but also to be able to, to go create something out of nothing and, you know, come from a hard place and, well, and to be able to sit there with that smile we keep talking about, you know, and <laughs> I did want to ask you about one thing you mentioned earlier. You mentioned the idea of, of forgiving the past without forgetting it. Can you talk just for a minute about what that looks like in your life as you look back and, and you learned to forgive without forgetting? Yes. So I, I used to be one of those who it was hard for me to understand why do I have to forgive people after all they hurt to put me through? Why do I have to be the one who has to say, excuse me, I'm forgiving you when they hurt me. They should be the one. So I figured this out when I'm obviously, as you can tell, I'm a Christian. Um, over the years, I figured I went through a lot of hardship things that um, mental things that I had to go through. Um, my personality is very much of a person that worry a lot. So if you can, if you cope that with a lot of stress and a lot of trauma, it puts me in a position where I could end up with a lot of anxiety, phobia, things like that, depression. So I had a bit of a breakdown and I figure where all of this was coming from. It was from my past, yes. But it was the fact that I haven't forgiven whoever that had, those people that had um, affected me in such a negative way. I was carrying all this baggage and so much negative energy the whole time that I wasn't happy. And I felt unless the only way for me to get out of this is for me to really say, I forgive this person because Forgiveness is not for those people that hurt me. It's for myself, right? It, it makes me feel, I think for me too, it's a, a therapeutic because if I forgive them, I feel a little bit of a, a weight is lifted off of me. Um, that's something I don't have to carry anymore because the moment I feel like I'm carrying that burden, I feel so much more depressed, so much anxiety, so much, all these different things that I don't deserve in my life. I've already been through that experience. I've always know. I already know what it feels like to be down and under, and I know what it feels like to be stuck on. I know how it feels like to to be so much so like in a dark place. So why do I want to carry that darkness with me throughout my life when I can just set that load down and say, "Listen, I don't need to carry this anymore." Yes, it happened to me. Yes, all of these negative things happened to me, but I don't have to carry it around all these years because. Those are years that I cannot get back of happiness because I chose to carry this, right? So I realized I needed to forgive, not forget, because you cannot forget something that, is, that, is, that changed your chemical in your brain. Like you, that, as a young child being abused, you cannot forget. There's certain things you can't forget. But however, I can go through this and know that I don't have to carry this burden. I can say, I've forgiven you. So every time I hear that person's name comes up, it doesn't have to straddle me. I don't have to feel like this is still affecting me so much so that I can't speak of it. You know, if I'm just speaking of my trauma, I have to be in a place where I'm not going to have constant PTSD. Yeah, I still have that sometimes, but it's not to the magnitude where I, when I didn't forgive. Because, and another thing about forgiving too, to me, I don't feel like it's like one and done because you have to think of it as all those years that you were experiencing those, those trauma, those issues, it's going to take a long time for you to process this unless you actually took the time to go to a professional, seek professional help, whether it be um, trauma-informed therapy, um, 
then you actually are not really fully forgiving someone because you're still going to have that stuff that you haven't processed coming back to you. And then once you get through that, in that when you get in that, in that uh, mind, mindset, you're going to always have to have that hit come back in and for that person. So when you, when you really want to forgive, you have to go through some type of process that helps you process the trauma. And then you also have to say to yourself, okay, I know this happened to me. I know this person did this to me. And I know that I can't change what happened to me. But what I can do right now, I can actually try to see, figure out a way and a means to move forward. And, you know, and um, for me, I knew that Africa, with the tradition, the way things are sometimes, you don't expect people to apologize to you because it's a way of life. For them, it's a way of life. That's all they know. So I have to, be, I have to look at myself and say, what happened to that person that made them treat me the way they did? What type of trauma they had experienced themselves that allowed them to feel like it was right for them to do what they did to me? So almost like putting myself in their shoe, which, you know, that could be a bit of a big deal, a big thing, a big um, shoe to fill. But I wanted, I wanted to be able to figure out what is going on with them because we all have our own form of trauma and they may have had something that just didn't process, didn't understand, didn't go through. And that's, that's not excusing a bad behavior at all. Um, but I wanted to make sure that I don't keep carrying this on and just destroying myself inside. And that person in Africa, they're living that life. They're doing everything they can to move forward. And here I'm, yeah, I'm stuck in the past. I'm stuck in the 10 years ago when I could be going moving forward and having a good time and enjoying my life to the fullest. And only me can make that happen. So I needed to try to at least forgive. Even if it's not every single person, because it takes time. But do it because I feel I needed to let go and let some of that burden come down and be a little bit more happier. One, I think that I feel those people that I were able to forgive, I can feel that that weight lifted. And that's all I needed to do to move forward. And I said, the energy that I'm using to put into um, carrying this person's low and, you know, I can use that energy to better somebody else's life, to give someone else life, give them hope, give them everything that I thought I missed during that time when I was being um, abused, I can put that, that whole energy into something else. For me, it's, it's, it's charity work, and that's what helped me also. Wow. I think I'm starting to understand a bit of that smile. You, the theme that I'm hearing through this whole thing is just you finding a hope to live for. Mm-hmm. From all the way from, from way back in your past to your present and looking for hope in the future as well. And I feel like there's a good possibility that, that what you guys are doing, it really is going to help change a nation. And it's amazing that you can do that. And a good portion of the world will probably not know about it, but we're going to scream it from the rooftops until people hear and listen up and, and choose to join in with somebody who chooses hope as, as a way of operation. So good on you. Yeah. I just want to say, you know, it's been such a pleasure, Jason and your wife and Amanda just being here with you and sharing my story. Um, I know it's, it's something that I'm in a way proud of because I've been through it and I, I've, I've thrived through it and I'm here now and I'm able to speak of my story. That in itself shows that um, I've come a long way and I hope to continue sharing my stories, my story with other people. And then I just hope today that some of you were able to take something away, um, whether it be forgiving somebody, that person that you've been you know, worrying about all these years and, you know, and really trying to get rid of some of those negative energy. And um, 
I just pray and hope that everybody will find whatever they're looking for, whether it be hope, uh, peace, something. And just know that if you go through trauma, you can seek help and get help for yourself. Do it for you and be able to get that wholesome life that um, you won't get otherwise if you don't get that help that you need. Um, thank you so much. I appreciate being here for you and you know sharing my story today. Thank you. We appreciate you being here, Faith. And whether or not they find their hope or not, they found plenty of faith here today. And we appreciate <laughs> you coming and sharing your story so vulnerably and honestly with, with all of our listeners, because I know that someone will find plenty of value out of this. Absolutely. Someone who needs the push to go on, who needs that little bit of a spark to, to find their way. You know, hopefully we reach that person today. Okay, Foster Care Nation, thank you for listening to Faith's story. Now take her knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have a new episode every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach out at fostercareuj at gmail.com. We're also creating a new email address. You can use jason at fostercarenation.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. Don't forget, we have a Patreon where you can support our mission for as little as $5 a month. It's at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. The links to everything in the show notes on your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. Oh, cool, cool, cool.